0: Welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, a podcast about, what, all things Lutheran? Yeah. Hosted by Christopher Gillespie. And all things, really, Luther, for the time being, right? For the time <laughs> being, that's correct. Thanks. And I uh, am Donovan Riley. What episode is this?
1: This would be, oh, shoot, where'd my notes go? I was prepared. Uh, episode 49? Is that right? Wow. 49. Here we go. All
0: right. For our 50th, what is the 50th anniversary? What is that? Pewter? Oh, <laughs> what do wood? you give? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, what do you give? I don't know. Something, something pretty. Right. A life insurance policy? Yeah. If you make it that far, you, haven't, you have no money left, so. <laughs> that's, that's true. Part of the problem. Yeah. It's. Uh, we were talking, discussing this last night um, before the intro to jujitsu class that I assistant teach, because my head instructor just got promoted to brown belt. And we were discussing that it's not the best who make it to brown and black belt, it's just those who are left. <laughs> because what people don't realize at the at the front end of this whole process or journey or whatever you want to call it is there are so many things that can derail you mm-hmm. between day one and, let's say, 10 to 12 years in when you receive your black belt, not least of which being injuries. Yeah. And that those who make it to brown and black belt, as much as it's skill and and technique and and learning and advancing, a lot of it is just staying healthy, being consistent, showing up regularly and not falling victim to the temptations to take time off or you move and can't continue training or you get injured and have to take time off from training and kind of start from scratch when you come back. There's so many factors that go into getting that final promotion that you're that you're hunting for the whole time Hmm. and then even after your black belt there's coral belt and and there's that whole thing and what is that whole thing well the coral belt is, is is what comes after the black belt and it's a very exclusive club because one you have to live long enough to get your coral belt traditionally your instructor who awarded you your black belt must give you your coral belt oh So, he has still got to be alive? Okay. Exactly. There are all of these things. And as myself and my friend discuss, he's 43. It takes 30 years maybe to get your coral belt, 35 in some instances, 40. And so, you start later in life and that's just not a reality for a lot of people who Mm -hmm. start later. And those who start younger, they suffer from what the – short-sightedness and naivety of youth. They think I've got nothing but time and therefore they squander the time. Yeah, they don't work hard. Versus as you know too, as you mature and get older, you begin to appreciate time. Mm
1: -hmm. As I
0: say all the time, the days are long, but the time is short. And you recognize that you don't have a lot of time to be frivolous with your days. Nope. Like you did when you were 23, for example. And therefore there's a seriousness and kind of a zeal and earnestness for the day. And so the older guys are the ones who show up the most often to train, because they recognize the need. Yeah, when you're young, you might watch, uh, you know, more than once, like
1: all the episodes of Lost, for example, which was mm-hmm. kind of a, you know, relatively yeah. worthless show in the broad scheme of things. <laughs> right. It didn't really go Especially anywhere. Especially that final season. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and when you're young, you might actually rewatch you know binge watch the whole season and now you look at it right "Mm, no it's just not worth the effort
0: (laughs) right no i don't have time in fact watching tv is watching tv worth the effort if i'm not Mm -hmm. learning if i'm not gaining knowledge if i'm not improving like strengthening my brain muscle right yeah so you spend your time you choose you know you're more selective right which brings us also to the text that we'll be looking at again today luther's galatians lectures we took a break for christmas from the Galatians lectures to read into some other material. And now we're going to jump back into it. And this is the section we're going to dive into then is Luther discussing or lecturing on how to measure the true Christian. Mm -hmm. And I think for us as Lutherans, this is again, a dichotomy like we were talking about before we went on air about things. The dichotomy is on the one hand, we're justified entirely by faith through grace or by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and therefore, apart from all works. Mm -hmm. And yet, simultaneously, as you and I know as pastors, we are also constantly exhorting, urging, encouraging our members to not sit tight on what they learn in Sunday school or confirmation.
1: Yeah. Uh, Because what's the expression? Idle hands or the devil's workshop,
0: something like that? Right. Sugar is the devil's cocaine. Oh, well, that. <laughs> speaking of vivid metaphor. There we no, go. No. But nonetheless, that is that is the push and pull. We call that the two kingdoms, left and right-handed kingdoms. It's also a part – it's part and parcel of the symbol mm-hmm. to – that the new man fights against the flesh, fights against the old Adam. And one way in doing that, practically speaking, is – attending Bible study regularly yeah. and being in God's word and wrestling with God's word and asking questions and challenging not only your presuppositions, but what's being taught to you and having a conversation, a rigorous conversation about, let's say, matters of faith, things that you hold deeply, deeply personal.
1: Yeah,
0: Because wow. to fall back on your presuppositions at a certain point, I would argue, is not naivety, but willful ignorance.
1: Yeah. So uh, how does Paul say it? Something about, is he talking to Timothy about, you know,
0: holding fast to what you've learned, right? Right, yeah.
1: Well, how do you do that unless you're actually constantly renewing, in a sense, Mm -hmm. right? Or or reviewing, I guess is what we'd say in an academic Mm -hmm. way, right? I mean, you you go back and you have to hear it again. Uh, There was an article I started to read this morning. uh, I didn't get very far into it. It was from an Anglican priest kind of talking against, uh, their wide their wholesale adoption of a three-year series of readings, you know, for their mm-hmm. churches, um, and saying that, you know, at least from his perspective as an educator, uh, he's he's a catechist in his church. That, right. Um, the kids just aren't retaining stories, like they, yeah, they, right. Maybe maybe we learn fewer stories with a one-year series of readings. He, he makes the argument, but mm-hmm. but at least we hear it, and we hear it, and mm-hmm. we hear it every year. Or maybe we miss a year, but we hear it the next year, and so that at least those things are. Right. Put into our memory, kept in our memory. I think would be even better way of saying it.
0: My professor at seminary, he came from a storytelling tradition in immigrant community in mm-hmm. northern Montana, and this is something that we discussed because there are two books that came out. Mm, I can't remember when they came out. Maybe the early to mid in the eighties. One was called Johnny Can't S- uh, Sing. Mm-hmm. Why, the other why one was, Johnny Can't Sing? Yeah. Why can't Johnny can't sing? And the other one had to do with why Johnny can't learn or something. You remember those two books by yeah. Lathrop or somebody? Yeah, that's right. Was it, yeah, was it Gordon? No, go, was it Gordon Lathrop? I can't remember. But one was essentially why don't Christians sing congregational hymns anymore, or mm-hmm. what happened to traditional congregational hymn? And the other one was essentially why can't congregations remember the sermon it was and T. David retain? Gordon. T. David. Oh, there Gordon. we go. Yeah. So we had the Gordon part right. Just yeah. like the rest. Of the
1: and, uh, and if I remember correctly, he was a uh, Roman Catholic, so he was really was it. Yeah, it was Why okay. Johnny Can't Preach was another one. How the, that's the one I was thinking. The media of, yeah. have shaped the messengers. So that's yes, running with yes. uh, Marshall McLuhan's thesis, right? That's right. That's right. Was mm-hmm. that
0: the late 70s or was that the 80s? Marshall McLuhan? Or this no, book? Uh, uh, no, Why Johnny Can't
1: Preach. Well, Why You Can't Sing was 2010. Why You Can't Preach. Oh, really? Preach? That recently. Well, this edition. Republished. Two thousand nine. I mean, these are these are pretty recent. No, uh, those gotta be because I was. We read those at seminary. Okay, so these are I read those be, in 98, 99. These must be new editions. Yeah, yeah, on Amazon. Yeah, but, but nonetheless, it is a generational challenge. What it is because because we're, we're affected by our um, media environment. I think was the thesis mm-hmm. again with McClure. Yeah, right. Saying you know if if all we listen to, if all we actually sing are our pop music, right? So no many mm-hmm. our churches have followed that kind of model. Right? Correct. Um, well, I'm but-
0: going back to my point too, mm-hmm. we are not an immigrant community anymore no. and therefore those storytelling communities, and that's how they retained their culture was through narrative through yeah. the stories and their traditions and their history. And likewise, we were having a conversation uh, a week or so ago that my son asked me, my oldest son asked me why music sucks today. Yeah. <laughs> broadly speaking not just in a narrow sense and one of the things we discussed because he and my daughter actually my whole all my kids they really really like music from the 70s and late 60s and early 90s and what we discussed is you know analog recording of course Mm -hmm. but also that every generation moves further and further away from its roots in the blues Mm. and today if you listen to rock music not obviously people like Jack White or others who are really well grounded in the blues, but I mean younger bands coming up like Greta Von Fleet and whatever, who they're aping Led Zeppelin, for example. Right, right. But they themselves are getting their training in the blues filtered through Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. versus going to the root, which is what a lot of those British bands grew up on. And right. they discovered Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and John Lee Hooker and so forth and so on. And so, without that rooting in the blues, that these earlier musicians like the Rolling Stones and Cream mm. and even the Beatles, they grew up in that tradition, listening to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, and Screamin' Jay Hawkins, and others. It influenced, and it's obviously influenced their music. They even had, the, they invited those musicians to go on tour with them so they could introduce them to other people. But then the next generation in the 70s and into the 80s learned from those british musicians for example and then by the time you get to the 90s and the 2000s the influences are more deeply rooted in british heavy metal and hard rock Mm. and new wave post-punk kind of uh, genres which again drew influences from the blues initially but now you're second third generation removed from that much like these storytelling communities Mm -hmm. yeah you might say it's derivative um But
1: you know, if it's if it actually is creative, it, it's gonna just be something new, right? Right, right.
0: <clears throat> Excuse me, and I think that's the the challenge then is to engage or interface with other people in such a way that you are not just relating or reading something to them, teaching them something, but you're also teaching them how to think yeah. and how to communicate. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's not um I mean, it's, we're not immune to that in the church, right? No. And I think that's where no. you're going with it is to say, right. I mean, there's derivative preaching, right? Where you just, mm-hmm. you're, like you say, aping somebody preached before and it's right. not uh, – the words we would use, like like with pop music, would be it's not authentic or – It's not either. ironic. It's either
0: It's a thing, right? Yeah. It's like when you or I or, or others copy or ape Nagel, Dr. Norman mm-hmm. Nagel, mm-hmm. by verbing the nouns, for example – is we're fully aware of the irony of it. We've, we're fully aware of what we're doing when we're doing it. We're not doing it like school children aping an adult. We're fully aware of what we're doing when we copy him or ape him. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, it's easy for us to laugh at it because we're aware of what we're doing.
1: You know, I think that's a helpful exercise because uh, the J.S. Bach, um, in reading his biographies, they they always had you just copy out manuscripts. That's how you started to learn to compose, right. is you would copy. Right. You just make copies of other people's music. Now, they didn't have printing presses, and you had to copy by hands.
0: Uh, well, they had printing press, but not for music. Same thing mm-hmm. with art in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. You would, the master would sketch it out on canvas, and you would just paint it. Like, almost a paint by numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, but that's a great way to learn, right? It is, for sure. But it's not a great way to develop your own creativity or your voice. Right,
1: so the point would be, um, and I, I told this to the uh, confirmands this week as well. That yes, I want you to know what the Bible says, and I want you to, mm-hmm. to understand. Um, but ultimately, I want you to be able to express it, right? Right. To, you know, or right. to confess it, we would say, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not aping it. That's actually applying it or interacting with it, engaging it mm-hmm. more than more mm-hmm. than just on a here's knowledge, you know, or here's right. here's. Uh, what do you want to say, here's how the system works or
0: something like that, but it's mm-hmm. actual wisdom, right? Right. Well, and what, what we're about to read points to that, that the gospel is counterintuitive, it's counter old Adam's way of thinking, and therefore we're battling against ourself while we're teaching this <laughs> as much as those who are listening are battling against it because it is so counterintuitive. Right. And it's like saying, I'm preaching on the text this Sunday, that we may approach God with all boldness through faith in Christ and meditating on why do we not approach God boldly? Why are we not confident? (laughs) And at root, what Paul is after too is because you're not looking at the cross, it's in Christ, it's through faith in Christ that we may approach. And therefore, when you ask, why is this happening? Or why would God do this? More often than not, the anxiety or the trouble caused by not necessarily actual misery and suffering and struggle, but the thought of it, Or inventing it for yourself, so to speak, is you're not faced up to the cross and therefore you don't recognize the misery and the suffering and the struggle that's taking place at the cross is that's you, that's yours. Yeah. He's taking that upon himself and therefore when you don't get faced up to the cross – you're left, so to speak, on your own to try and work out where's God and how can you really approach God with bold confidence <laughs> when you're not quite sure he even cares? Yeah, or we would say apart from Christ, right? Apart
1: from Christ, exactly. You know, which is, that's probably the default position though is to try to do it anyway but that way.
0: <laughs> right, well how to measure the true Christian if left alone, if we were just to discuss the subheading how to define a true Christian or how to measure the true Christian, and there's that little word, measure, mm. and the other little word, true. Quantifiable, yes. That, exactly, that sets up the old Adam to run rampant. I get to measure something, I get to figure out what's true versus what's false about a Christian. On a scale of one to ten, how do you feel as a Christian today? Right. <laughs> how exactly. Christian do you on feel? <laughs> a, on a scale of one to Uggs, when did you quit? <laughs> and so let's dive in. We're going to start on page 111. Uh, Galatians 2.16. This is from Martin Luther's commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians, 1535. Lecture notes transcribed by students and presented in today's English, translated by Geraldo Camacho. Mm-hmm. And we're, uh, we're traveling back in time to Friday, August 7th. There we go. Friday, August 7th of 1532, 33.
1: What did we decide? I think it was 32 is what we decided. Yeah. Uh, August, no, 1531.
0: There you go. 1531. Wow. Okay. So there you go. So, top of the page, <clears throat> excuse me, page 111. <clears throat> Every cross and affliction that will come our way will be carried easily and suffered with joy, quote, because the yoke that Christ places on us is easy and his burden is light, unquote. When sin has been forgiven, and the conscience is freed from the burden and the sting of sin, then the Christian will be able to carry all things easily. He will feel that all things in themselves are sweet and pleasant. Therefore, he tolerates all things with good will. But when people walk in their own righteousness, everything they do is arduous and tedious because they do it unwillingly. <laughs> hmm. that's remarkable,
1: right, yeah, so the diagnostic, at least from this one mm-hmm. paragraph, the diagnostic for somebody who says, well, you know, I find it such a chore you know to uh right to say my prayers, for example <laughs> right <laughs> or or even to do something very practical, right? right to like take care of my daughter, you know it's yeah. such a chore well, why is that you know it's because you're tr- you're putting your own righteousness. Uh, into that,
0: right? Right. You're freed from the burden of measuring Hmm. whether or not what you're doing for your daughter is pleasing to God. (laughs) And because you're not worried any longer whether it's pleasing to God, you're also not worried that much anymore about whether it's pleasing to your neighbor. You do Mm -hmm. it because, well, that's your vocation. Mm -hmm. That's what you're literally called to do in the present tense. It's actual vocational work. It's baptismal vocational work. And... That's the point, is when sin has been forgiven and the conscience is freed from the burden and sting of sin, you can carry all things easily because you are freed from the burden of, I wonder if God is judging me or not. Yeah. And if God does not judge me, well, to think of it in the inverse, people who publish on social media, only God can judge me, are actually walking in their own righteousness. That's really what they're saying. It's a right. cover for, you can't judge me because what I do or what I choose to do, I've already justified to myself. Right. The God who judges me is the, is actually me,
1: right? I'm judging myself right. as not guilty. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not yeah. my God. Uh, huh. So, yeah, don't judge me as saying, I've already been judged and I'm judged
0: in myself. Right. right. <clears throat> or to put it in Luther's words, I've already judged myself unwillingly. And therefore, I am unwilling to accept that the measure that I use to measure myself is entirely subjective. It's self-created. Hmm. Hmm. But because I do this unwillingly and therefore it is arduous and tedious, I will put the stamp of God's approval on it, the ultimate justification. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not the same God, right? Right. Thus, on the other hand, then, if sin is forgiven and your conscience is freed from the burden and sting of sin, you do not need to trump it your righteousness to others. Hmm. You do not need a trumpet that you are forgiven and you are freed from the burden and guilt of sin because you simply are. And as you pointed out, you will then go about your vocational duties no matter how heavy the cross that's laid upon you happens to be at that moment, you'll carry it easily Hmm. because the yoke that Christ places on us is easy and his burden is light. The challenge being, of course, that this is not easily believed. Right, it's simple. It's just not easy. Hmm yeah simple to say not easy to believe is that your hackworth is that who that is what's that Or yeah it was
1: wasn't it hackworth that said that? david
0: hackworth about face uh-huh yeah Quoting somebody from back World War Two, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of his, I think it was his drill sergeant or mm. his sergeant that he first linked up with in Trieste in Italy when he was serving there. David Hackworth, about face, 833 page biography of the most decorated war veteran in U.S. history, born on Memorial Day and was buried on Veterans Day. Coincidentally. How do you like that, huh? Yeah. If there was a picture of Uncle Sam, it should be David Hackworth. <laughs> he is Captain America, or was. He died a couple of years ago, 2007, I think. But nonetheless, that's right. Is, and this is why Luther then continues back to the book. Thus, we define a Christian in the following way. A Christian is not someone without sin, but anyone to whom God does not impute sin through faith in Christ. This doctrine greatly comforts the conscience when it feels miserable and deeply stressed by profound and internal fears. Therefore, with good reason, we so often hammer home into the mind the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness on account of Christ. In the same way, we insist that the Christian will not have anything to do with the law and sin, especially in the moment of temptation. Since he is already a Christian, he is above the law and sin, for he already has Christ, the Lord of the law, present and safeguarded in the heart, as I've said before. As the ring safeguards the jewel or precious stone within its circle. That is why when the law accuses him and sin hounds him, he fixes his eyes on Christ, whom he has grasped by faith. He will realize that he already has present with him the conqueror of the law, sin, death, and the devil. Christ reigns and governs over these evils so that they can no longer hurt the Christian. Therefore, the Christian is correctly defined as someone who is free from all laws and who is no longer under submission to anything or anyone internally or externally. Yeah, now that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I was going to say about everything Luther says in his Galatians lectures is a mic
1: drop moment. <laughs> Not only a mic drop moment, but really almost scandalous to us, right? Almost, uh, Yeah, like, <laughs> but, but, but but Mr. Luther, Mr. Luther, uh, what's going to happen if right. if we don't? have these laws. I mean, right. you know, the the world is going to, you know, go to hell in a handbasket. The church, even worse, mm-hmm. the church is just going to turn into this chaotic, disordered mess. Right. If, if people live in the freedom that Christ gives. Um, right. <laughs> that is the forgiveness of sins. Well, we were,
0: we, again, we were discussing this the other day in relation to the left-hand kingdom, that when everything is permitted, when everything is lawful, nothing is lawful. Hmm. Because if nothing is law, if there's nothing to be regarded as prohibitive, meaning there is nothing to restrain any of us because everything is lawful, everything is permitted, all drugs are legal, prostitution, gambling is legal, murder is legal, everything is legal, well, then nothing is lawful because I consider robbery not to be a sin or to be unlawful and therefore I rob you of your possessions. But on the other hand, you don't consider murder to be unlawful, and therefore you murder me in the act of robbery. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if everything is lawful, then nothing is. Right.
1: So maybe we want to be a little bit um, more precise as to how we're mm-hmm. talking here, right? That he's right. talking about those whose conscience feel miserable um, and deeply stressed by profound and internal fears. These are the people who know, right. know their sin, and they know their sin according to the law, Right,
0: right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That they cannot find any relief from the burden that comes to them by way of God's word of law that reveals to them, as you pointed out, uh, you got a problem. <laughs> yeah.
1: it's, and it's it's profound. deathly.
0: It's profound. It's satanic. It's a profound problem, and it's going to kill you. Hmm. And the problem, the bigger problem, is you actually enjoy it.
1: Yeah. So who can find? Who can find what? Hope, safety, mm-hmm. comfort. Um, right. Or, or even a clean or clear conscience in the right. midst of that.
0: Right? right. So, this is why Luther starts off with, a Christian is not someone without sin, but anyone to whom God does not impute sin through faith in Christ.
1: Right. And so, underlying this, of course, is, as we've talked about many times, um, mm-hmm. that we remain uh, a sinner according to the flesh. Even right. while being a Christian on the mm-hmm. uh, on account of the imputed Christ. righteousness of Christ, his forgiveness right. of sins.
0: Yeah. The mistake we would argue that Augustine makes is he locates both sin and righteousness inside the Christian. Hmm. Okay. Luther corrects Augustine by saying, No, sin resides in the Christian in the flesh. Righteousness resides outside of the Christian in Christ, the person of Christ. And therefore it must be imputed because the communication of that righteousness is communicated through the word of God, but it is alien to us. Yeah. That word
1: imputation or to impute, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. we don't really use that in any other context, right? No, not
0: really. No. Not in regular conversation.
1: Yeah. So it's one of those churchy words that we just have to continually define.
0: Right. It means to reckon or consider. Right. God no longer looks at you in light of your sin, but rather he has forgotten all your sin. That's actually what righteousness means. God no longer remembers your sin on account of... Christ.
1: And uh, again, not believable. So as Luther says, it's hammered home <laughs> right, into the mind uh, or in, we would say into the heart too.
0: And notice where he immediately goes though with this, the reason he's defining a Christian in this way is so that it might comfort the conscience when it feels miserable and deeply stressed by profound and internal fears. Mm-hmm. That's why we hammer it into the minds constantly. And the internal fears
1: are the ones... Uh, It was like Paul would reveal, I mean, this is written upon our hearts, that Mm -hmm. that no one escapes the judgment of the law.
0: Right. It either excuses, our heart either excuses or accuses us before God's throne.
1: Regardless of whether we've actually heard God's word, whether we know the Ten Commandments. Right. um, Right. We we are going to know the accusation of the law.
0: Right. I've gone back and I've begun rereading my Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the last couple of months. And this is a constant theme in all of Dostoevsky's writing, whether it be Brothers Karamazov, The Idiot, Crime and Punishment, the, the Underground, The Possessed. Through and through, it is this whole question of the effect of the law in practical, concrete reality and how these characters like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, he decides there is no higher moral law. There is no objective moral truth. There is no such thing as the conscience. Hmm. And so he murders this old lady to prove it, and then this you know, this young boy comes in and catches him in the act, so he has to kill the 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 young man, the boy too, and then goes and confesses his sins to the only person he considers to be pure or righteous, which is this prostitute. Wow this young girl who's a prostitute because her mother is sick and cannot work and she has all these siblings and therefore she sells herself to take care of these people and the dynamics that happen within that context. But it is the constant search, even for Ivan Karamazov, who's a avowed atheist who yet believes in God. He simply refuses to accept God as God because he doesn't like, he doesn't like God (laughs) because he doesn't like what he sees happening pragmatically realistically and so ivan will say i'm not a materialist i'm a realist Hmm. which i think is worth consideration when you talk to an atheist is it may not be the atheist is a materialist in a western capitalistic sense he doesn't believe in god because he has everything he needs so to speak Mm -hmm. materially he's a realist in the sense of um euclidean geometry is the example Dostoevsky always uses that atheists are Euclidean in their view of the world. Everything is very scientific. His response to the problem of evil is very reasonable. The yes, very reasonable, very pragmatic. It's A plus B equals C kind of logic. Mm-hmm. And so you see this constantly in Dostoevsky's writings. And it is just that point that these people are pursued by the law But until it is revealed to them why they suffer and struggle in their conscience with questions of belief, with questions of objective morality, it has to be revealed to them by someone outside of them who they are attracted to because they see in the other person a a miserable person who is even beyond struggling, is simply crushed by the weight of what we would call the law, and yet in the midst of that, they have faith. And not the hypocritical faith of the church that Dostoevsky sees, uh, but rather they have true faith. Yeah. And for Dostoevsky's characters, they look at these people and ask, how can you possibly have faith when you're so miserable, so oppressed, so marginalized, so far outside of what is acceptable in polite company? Even the church won't accept you. And then this other character being crushed by the law is driven to this person, not to the church or the priest. Yeah, that there
1: is this aspect that true faith is, um, you know, somebody who,
0: who at least in, in terms of their relationship to God has checked their ego at the door. Right. right. <laughs> well, again, going back to Crime and Punishment, every cross and affliction that will come our way will be carried easily and suffered with joy, because the yoke that Christ places on us is easy and His burden light. That's pretty much the thesis of that novel. Mm is this young woman, this prostitute, she bears her crosses and afflictions with a kind of what he calls a zealous, almost insane joy. I was going to say he can't wrap his mind around how someone who is so physically, emotionally, and intellectually crushed by the world could also then have joy in regards to
1: God. It's like Paul saying that, uh, you know, to die is is you know is better to live as christ to die as gain yeah. right but no i was thinking the other expression where he says you know uh to die would be gain for him uh, but mm. but if if he remains in this you know body of flesh in this really in suffering uh that means yeah. fruitful labor for him i mean right. it's not it's not just like a naive um well you know god has still has a plan for my life or you know has right. work to do no it's it's going to be struggle and pain but it will be fruitful um right in love for neighbor
0: i suppose is how we would say it Well, and to speak to your earlier point, it's simple, not easy. Hmm. When we read in the book of Acts that Peter, John, and James were tortured, and then when they were released, they went away singing hymns, essentially slapping each other on the back, celebrating the fact that they were chosen to suffer as Christ suffered at the hands of the same people who had him executed – we can read that and say, "Yes, that is that is it right there. There it is. There is the easy burden. There is the joy of the Christian to be chosen to suffer as his Lord suffers." But in actual fact, it's not easy. No, and it looks like psychosis. <clears throat> I think from the outside, exactly, exactly. And that's going back to Dostoevsky again. When he looks at his his muse, so to speak, this is exactly what you just said. He looks at her and says, "You're insane." You've got to be insane because how can you possibly be this zealous for God in this circumstance? Mm. Yeah, for the joy that was set before him, (laughs) laid down his life. Yes, exactly. And thus, to your point then, in what we've been discussing, it's not freed from the law, I am now also freed from responsibility Mm. or freed from the law, I somehow don't have troubles or struggles or I'm not miserable, but rather freed from the burden Of the law's accusations, freed from the burden of wondering whether my sin will condemn me or not, Mm -hmm. I am now free to bear other people's burdens with joy. Yeah, yeah. And this is, we just discussed this this past Sunday, is we were actually created to sacrifice ourselves for our neighbor. And yet on account of sin, we demand that our neighbor sacrifice themselves for us.
1: That's something, isn't it? Because if, it is because people love to say, "Oh, you are made in the image of God, right?" Yes, and like, well, no, that means that you are given to suffer in the way that Christ suffered, right? To give right. Him, give yourself in the way that Christ gave Himself for you, <laughs> right? Ooh, well, yeah,
0: and that's it. Just it does not compute with us. Hmm. Does not compute. It does not compute. And so, what ends up happening then is that when we are called, as you pointed out in in serving your daughter, you are called to sacrifice your life for your neighbor as Christ sacrificed himself for you. <clears throat> and that really is the primary reason we're created. Yeah. And then to and count it as joy. <laughs> yes, Ooh. exactly. And so I think it was Sonia, was that her name? Yeah, Sonia in Crime and Punishment, Sonia. Um, she is the, the self-sacrificial, she's the Christ figure in Crime and Punishment. Hmm. And as a consequence, that's the thing that really puts Raskolnikov off is he thinks that the purpose of life is, again, he kills a woman to prove that he has no conscience. <laughs> the purpose of life is other people are to sacrifice themselves so that you can discover these deeper truths or or achieve joy or some semblance of of satisfaction. Yeah. So when he sees someone who's truly sal- self-sacrificial for her mother, for her siblings, and does not think of herself first or second or third, it's Confusing, yeah, because it's so yeah. counterintuitive. Like I said, it's so contradictory to the way that we're wired. It's almost like a different operating system.
1: Well, you I know? think so. I mean, it, I mean that—that's the relationship of the Christian to the flesh, right? Right. They, Which these, I think these aren't, too aren't like then, com- these aren't. <laughs> what do you want to say, like two halves of a
0: whole, or something like that? No, they're they are at odds with one another. Right. Completely. This is a war, mm-hmm. and you get that language the strongest in the Old Testament for sure. And in the New Testament, it's definitely there. Well, we get but it later think, in Galatians, right? Yes, 100%. That's why I, yeah, I was just about to jump there. And that's the thing then is that as we've been discussing, we discussed this before we went on air, when we preach this to our congregations, it comes out easy enough. It's simple, right? Uh, we've studied it. We read something like the Galatians lectures so that it helps kind of flesh out, so to speak, no pun intended, our language that we use to teach this and yet when it comes to the actual practice of it suffering it in joy we get pushback yeah and if we were to say to this person but i've been preaching on this for the past 10 years 20 years 30 years you know the answer they'll throw that back in your face yeah and say how dare you bring that up right now can't you see that we're suffering it's like, well, actually, I've come to bring you comfort and to announce to you that there is true joy in suffering for Christ's sake yeah. versus suffering for your own righteousness. Well, and
1: then there's the also the reality <clears> that, <throat> that even as pastors, we struggle with the same struggle,
0: right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: You know, crucifying the old Adam or, or what do you want to say,
0: tearing down the right. ego or the, you know. Unfortunately, we're called to do it in front of people, <laughs> in front of a congregation of people. Right. But we how else? Out. I mean, how else are they going to learn except by- um, Example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. The best kind of example. Watch God crucify your pastor before your eyes. Mm, Fun times, fun times. And rejoice, yes. So back to the book. Therefore, the Christian is correctly defined as someone who is free from all laws, and who is no longer under submission to anything or anyone internally or externally. So, to wrap up that previous point, the reason that we are free from all laws is not because we become a law unto ourselves, but rather love is the fulfillment of the whole law. Mm-hmm. Love your neighbor, love God. So, freed from the burden of our own righteousness, freed from the burden of profound and internal fears as regards our relation to God, we are set free from all laws because in Christ, what? We serve our neighbor as Christ serves us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. Right.
0: The laws are there for the old Adam, not for the new man. Right,
1: right. And that, again, that makes us uncomfortable, but it also, mm-hmm. um, it's really the only way to proceed, right? Because right. think of like somebody who's who's got a catastrophe of a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how would Moses go about it? Well, even right. Moses set aside, you know, uh, the prohibition against divorce, Mm-hmm. For the sake of the of the you know the fact that we're dealing with people who live in the flesh, right? Yes. Did he always enforce the law and say no? You cannot absolutely divorce. You know, like say there was like abuse, right? Physical abuse. Yeah, right. Like, no, we're actually free to say the law here. You know, we have to set it aside for
0: the sake of <laughs> your right. life. For example, and this is such a key point because, especially in our circles, but also in other conservative circles, there is this constant push. To say, in heaven, the law is eternal. Lex eterna is what we call it. Yeah. The law is eternal. Therefore, the essence of God is law, and therefore, when we get to heaven at the last day, everything will be law. in here And that's not incorrect. However, the working definition of what that is is incorrect, usually, in mm-hmm. my experience. That is, the law of works is what is envisioned, yeah. not the law of love or the law of grace, as Paul calls it. That the reason there will be no, quote-unquote, law of works in heaven is because the law, which is love, love God and love your neighbor, will be permanent. Mm-hmm. And that the essence of God is, well, love, chesed in the Hebrew, chesed, right. faithful, loving kindness. And it's not a law that is prohibitive or a law that condemns and judges, but rather a law that sets free. Right, because
1: we'll no longer be in, in this body of death. There's no need for restraint, punishment. Yes. Um, right, you know boundaries, uh, legal prescription, right. that sort of thing. It, you know, and that's Galatians You're again. Right. That's Galatians four, right? It's like it's given after, right, for trespasses.
0: Well, in a certain sense, because I've also been reading uh, reading um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Gulag Archipelago, and Cancer Ward. There's a certain sense when people talk about the laws being the law of works and obedience. Heaven is like a gulag. <laughs> Where there are all these boundaries and all these prohibitions and that those who get rewards in heaven are like the capos; Those are the, like the guys who, who are in prison but then sell out to get special favors and become the policemen of the camp. Right. And in, in, in Germany during the Second World War, these would be Jews then who became policemen so that they could survive in the camp. So, they would actually beat and oppress their own people just so that they could get an extra meal or receive special treatment. And when you envision the Christian life then as one of constant obedience and works, and therefore you envision heaven as one of constant obedience and works which lead to rewards, you create this attitude, this this image of this kind of ghetto or gulag where we'll all be prohibited from what is bad. And so long as we are completely obedient, which will be easier because we'll be with Jesus, then we all get rewarded. But it's like three out of five people in Soviet Russia were informants for the government. So wow. that means in a in a family of five, at least two people in your family were informing on you. Yeah. So imagine what that does to trust and love, by the way, when one of your kids and maybe your spouse or grandma is a government informant. And think, imagine what that's like going to church on Sunday then. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you might be describing heaven
1: that way. I don't know if people see heaven that way, but they certainly see life in the church that way. 100%.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think people run that down to its conclusion. I think they stop at the law is eternal, and therefore, in heaven, the law will be perfected, fulfilled, mm-hmm. and therefore – but they they envision it as obedience, as works, not as love, mm. self-sacrificial love. And it's an extremely selfish, then, understanding of the law and a selfish vision of heaven, which is, I'm going to get mine because I've been obedient, mm. and you're not – Not to say you won't be in heaven, it's just to say you won't get the same rewards that I get when we get to heaven. But then we have the New
1: Testament saying there's either Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. I mean, there's no distinction in in terms of the reward, if you want to use that language. Right. Who who is Christ,
0: right? And therefore, the law, as we started off with, the law outside of Christ crucified kind of leaves us alone to ask, what's the purpose of the law? And as you just described, that's always where we end up, Hmm. always. yeah. Yeah. And we don't like we don't like the conclusion that we're given. I was gonna say that's why church so often is arduous and tedious and we go about it unwillingly.
1: Hmm.
0: We don't do it in the freedom to love one another and serve one another. We do it in the tedium of I've got to do this so that when I die I get to go to heaven. If I don't do it quite right, I'm right. I might, you know, put things in. Danger. And this is why the last place, and this has been a complaint for generations, the last place that you're going to find self sacrificial, self-giving love is in the church. <laughs> because you're not free to love each other when you're bound to work out your salvation in fear and trembling in the way of obedience yeah
1: there's that's the that's the the thing that really burdens us is this fear of failure right yes you know we might we might do something wrong we might not do it quite right and actually wreck the whole thing there's there's a lot of fear and trembling i mean oh where are the kids going all these sort of things and rather than just Mm -hmm. simply ask well why Why are we doing any of it, right? And right. what are we hoping to accomplish by it? Um, or what are we hoping that God will accomplish by it, I think
0: is a better right. question. Right. As I've said to our friend, Pastor Buto in conversation, Christianity is simple. We make it complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. are justified for Christ's sake, period. Yeah. And I think probably one of the most uncomfortable
1: aspects of that, like, oh, I'm thinking back when I was a new pastor, is just to say um uh, the the prospect of, of christian freedom terrified me because oh the, yes what's going to happen what, it's the dirtiest word in the whole bible freedom uh, where where might this go what might i have to this is especially right. where it's accusatory what might i actually have to set aside for the sake of love for my neighbor that right, right now i'm i'm like i'm terrified to get rid of because right you know Like if I leave that part of the liturgy out or if I don't make that motion or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, or if I don't behave quite right in this way. Right. (laughs) You know, or if I wait too long, if I'm too patient, then something might happen,
0: right? Right. (laughs) Well, and this is so key and another thing that we don't willingly want to accept and acknowledge is the reason the gospel must be preached to us and must predominate the sermon is we are born enslaved to sin and the law and we are by nature slaves, we will enslave ourselves to anybody and anything that can tell us what to do and give our lives direction. Hmm. We hate freedom. We're not born free, we're born slaves, which is why for centuries, philosophy argued about whether or not we have free will. And to this day, we still argue it. Why? Because we don't want it, actually. We argue for it, we demand it, but as soon as we're given it, let's say in the realm of politics, for example, we immediately give it away. Yeah, we want a limited will, I I would say, you know, if we're going to be more precise. Right, yeah, we're very Arminian that way. We want a limited set of choices. We want will in regards to this, but not in regards to that. Right, (laughs) right, Right. exactly. We want free will in regards to God, but in relation to our neighbor, we want to be slaves Mm -hmm. to something or Mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. So back to the book, that person is distinctively a Christian, even before you think of that person as a man or woman. (laughs) In other words, it is because that person's conscience has been adorned and beautified by this faith, with this great and priceless treasure, as Paul said, with this quote unquote indescribable gift, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. We cannot exalt or praise this gift enough, for it makes us children and heirs of God. In this way, the Christian is greater than the entire world. He has such a gift such a treasure in the heart that although it may seem small, it is greater than heaven and earth because Christ, the gift, is greater than all. (laughs) Hmm. Luther continues, as long as this doctrine that calms and quiets the conscience is preserved pure and without pollutants, Christians are then able to judge over all kinds of doctrines and are lords over the laws of the entire world. With all certainty, they can judge that the Muslim with his Quran is under a curse. He is not in the right path because he does not recognize that he is a miserable sinner since he does not grasp Christ by faith, by whose merits he can rest assured that his sins are forgiven. Hmm. In the same way, he can boldly pronounce sentence against the Pope who together with his entire kingdom is under condemnation. For he goes around everywhere with all his contingency of philosophers and scholars, teaching that through congruous merit, we can come to grace, and that afterward, through condign merit, we gain entrance to heaven. But the Christian says that this is not the way we are justified, nor is it the path that leads to heaven. Because I can't, he says, through my works, Previous to gr- grace, merit grace, or from for my works, after grace, merit eternal life. However, he who believes in Christ receives remission of sins, and righteousness is imputed to him. This truth and this righteousness make him a child of God and an heir of his kingdom. In hope, he already has eternal life. Through the promise, he is sure and certain. Through faith in Christ, we are given. All things, grace, peace, forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal life. Congruous and condign merit have no part at all. Yeah, so he's responding to his
1: medieval Roman mm-hmm. uh, Catholic context. Ironically, yeah. though, maybe not ironically, uh, you know, since Vatican II, the, the Roman church, the, the, the church of the pope, Has uh, found all sorts of uh, righteousness outside of the Christian Church, right? Outside of Christ, they have right. So I don't know if they would. Well, they would. Some of them would get caught up in this whole Abrahamic faith uh, idea, Mm -hmm, right? They do. You know Mm -hmm. that that the that the Muslim even worships the 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 one God. The same God just doesn't know. Um, yeah. Him as the Son and the Spirit, right? You know. Yeah, right. You right. Know, he, he's just kind of, he's, he's close, but he's not quite there. And then the reason why that's ironic is that like the five pillars of Islam actually correspond really well to the disciplines of the Catholic Church. <laughs> well, they should because they come from the same
0: place. Mm-hmm. They come from, what, from the Hebrew practice? Well, they come from the Bible. We we again so often forget that up until the Middle Ages, Islam was a Christian heresy. Yeah, because it is, and that the teachings that eventually become the Quran were taught to Muhammad by these desert mystics, these Gnostics that were out there, Zoroastrians that were out in the desert, all of these Christian heretics that were driven out into the desert. Right, were because, teaching Muhammad. Because these he was things. along
1: the Silk Road, right? I mean, yes, yeah, those trading routes. So you right. pick up all that stuff.
0: Right, and so, in a sense, it's not incorrect to say we all worship the same God, we all drink from the same well, however, the well is poisoned hmm. because it's not Christ, yeah and uh, and that's the problem with all heresy,
1: yeah, well, but to say that there's salvation outside of Christ, right mm-hmm. um, sounds remarkable. Uh, but in case you didn't believe it, I, I like to listen to uh, Catholic radio on the way to and from work. It's about as long mm-hmm. a trip as I can handle. Well, as <laughs> sure. long as I can listen, it's a short right. trip. You know, it's, it takes me six, seven minutes. That's about as much of that radio station as I can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting because somebody calls in and just says, "Well, what about the righteous pagan?" and and they'll just come out and say it. They have no faith mm-hmm. in Christ, and yet they worship the same God. Right. And so, and then handy dandy purgatory comes in. Right. Uh, yes, where, where God will figure it out later on for them, you know, right. apart from baptism, apart from Christ, apart from salvation in Him. Right. Oh, it's really incredible to hear him say it out loud. Um, mm-hmm. But it's nice wishful thinking. I think that's what it comes down to, you know. I mean, the, the righteous uh, Muslim, for example. Right. You know, we'd like to believe that that merits him something. And, right. And, and I don't understand these two terms. Maybe you can explain them to me. This congruous, congruous and, and condine. Like, uh, we want to call up a. Uh, Geraldo, and say, uh, yeah, you use these technical terms, but we need more
0: definition in the footnotes. <laughs> well, in the sense, keep going, but I was going to say, too, on a practical level, to run this thought down before we jump into this, mm-hmm. is it's also a way to preserve peace around the world for Roman Catholics who are living side-by-side side with Muslims in, say, the Philippines or Southeast Asia, oh, yeah. or living side-by-side side with Jews in the Middle East. It's how do we get along with each other without killing each other in a way that allows us to worship our God and yet also allows others in that conversation to worship their God, which we'll say is our God under – it's the it's the old enlightenment philosophy that there are many paths up the same mountain, mm-hmm. but once you get to the top, it's the same peak for everybody.
1: Yeah, every mountain
0: is – I mean, Sinai and Mount Fuji are the same mountain kind of idea. Yes, right. <laughs> so, let me see. I'll, I'll read – and – Right, so condign merit is an aspect of Roman Catholic theology signifying merit with the dignity of Christ. A person born again in Christ does not merit of his own virtue, but the virtues of Christ are applied to his work. Mm. Therefore, it is God crowning his works. Congruent merit is the equivalent of condign merit, but applied to an unregenerated person by the goodness of God. So condign merit, God has obligated himself by his promise to reward his son's merits and his children congruent merit god bestows his merit to those who seek him in faith not from obligation but from mercy and love oh. so can dine apply to the christian congruent applied to the one who not quite a christian but as your to your point is searching working a seeker at, is a seeker <laughs> the one who is close to the kingdom but not all the way in
1: hmm.
0: a righteous pagan we would call them
1: so, but that's the same idea uh, I think we've talked about in, in previous shows where, you know, we do our part and then God does the rest, that kind of, uh, mm-hmm. that's the American heresy more than anything,
0: right? Right. Yeah. It's to say that, it's essentially to say that there are Christian works that are righteous, but there are also pagan works that are righteous. Yeah, and we wouldn't disagree with that, but they're not righteous in terms of salvation. But, yeah, I was going to say, but in the Roman Catholic way of explaining it, they're both blessed by God mm-hmm. in their own way. Yeah, and that every work um, done...
1: Uh, you know that every good work i should say that is done not only benefits your neighbor
0: but also uh, merits something before god right right so in the case of the christian god is duty bound according to his promises to reward your works when you are not a christian he is not bound to do it but because of the righteousness the virtue of your works he chooses to do it Mm. Mm. yes versus we define a christian in the following way (laughs) A Christian is not someone without sin, but anyone to whom God does not impute sin through faith in Christ. Key words there, through faith in Christ. Yeah. And it's imputed. It's 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 proclaimed imputed upon not. You. Right. It's not it's not in you and it's not of you, and it's not from you, and it's not yours to possess. Hmm. It must be declared to you by God's preacher. Yeah. And even then he is simply pointing not at you. But he is pointing to the cross,
1: and these two these two schemes, if you want to set them up against each other, I mean they're 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 diametrically opposed to one another, right? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. You know, and that and that the criticism of especially Luther from Rome was that you know he added a line right to yes. to his reading of uh, Romans, you know that you're saved by grace alone, right? Right, apart but, from the works of the law, apart from works of the law that 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 uh, you know that Luther was setting Romans against James. Of course, he had issues yes. with James early in his career. But I think later he, he was able to at least <laughs> reconcile it a little bit. But, but still, you know, are we saved by works? No. We are saved by
0: works, yes, if you're going to say it's the works of Christ. Right. 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 And they are imputed to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do not need to worry about condign or congruent merits because the merits of Christ are applied to us through faith, by way of baptism. And if you struggle with that, go to the Lord's table, And get your reminder. Yeah. Given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Exactly. This is why the post-communion collect in the historic liturgy is that we might be strengthened in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another Mm -hmm. through this imputed gift, it's called. It's right there in the collect, imputed gift. (laughs) And therefore, uh, this is the dividing line, as you pointed out, between Luther and all of his opponents, but also Luther and some of his colleagues. Hmm. Yeah. Because as we said, it's simple enough to say it. Right. But in actual practice. How might you say it? The, the old Adam dies hard. <laughs> dies super. He's got a strong backstroke. <laughs> he's hard to drown. And that's probably a good place to stop simply because he then gets deeper into the scholastic arguments about congruous and condign merit, ceremonies, masses, and and so forth, which is kind of deep in the weeds for this conversation. But... I would invite anybody listening, if you want to dig deeper into what we just barely touched on at the end of this podcast, go to page 111 and 12 and then into 113 and, and onto the next page to get into what Luther's arguing against. Because within that discussion of condign congruent merits is really the foundation or the, it's the battleground. Not only of our internal struggle, our internal fears, as he as Luther states at the beginning of this, but this is the battleground between Christians and the battleground between the church and the world.
1: yeah, and it's really the only it's really the only distinction between I mean it, it, it's the I shouldn't say it's the only distinction. It is well, no, it really is the only way that, that the Christian mm-hmm. faith departs from the the world. It's what really makes yes. it unique. Right. right, and otherwise, I mean, if if the Christian faith is about is about works that gain mm-hmm. access to heaven, then right. why Christian and not anything else? Right, all right. the other ways that we strive towards gaining access to heaven through our own works, through our own merit. Right, mm-hmm.
0: this is the thing to bring it full circle. Then Dostoevsky was raised by Christians and grew up with the Bible, and then, as so many teens do, rejected the faith of his people, the faith of his family. And became a declared avowed atheist, became a revolutionary and participated as was popular at the time in anarchistic and and other movements, was kind of rounded up and and assigned to be executed for sedition essentially, Mm -hmm. and then was pardoned while standing there waiting to be shot. There's some speculation as to whether that was more a show by the state to scare people than an actual death sentence but no one can prove it he was then sent to a gulag sent to prison for 10 years and as he was going into the prison a woman handed him a new testament wow and that was all he had to read and he read it and then he read it to others who were illiterate and then he began teaching it to others and through that imprisonment he was actually brought back to the faith isn't that something the word so rather than come out of Right. And so rather than coming out of prison, like so many of his colleagues who were hardened by the experience and became more radical in their revolutionary activity, became more radicalized in their atheism, Dostoevsky came out of prison and said, I'm done with all that childish nonsense. It's juvenile, it's immature, it's naive, and I'm going to devote my life to serving God through my vocation. Now, to that point, he was also an inveterate gambler, probably an alcoholic, could not hold down a job to save his life Hmm. and was constantly being supported by other people, specifically one woman. And in his books, this is why Dostoevsky in the 20th century was analyzed to death by psychologists and psychiatrists because there's something so pathological about his novels that they're essentially a – it's essentially a self-meditation, a self-reflection on his own experience. And – The more you know about Dostoevsky's life, the more when you read his books, you go, oh, I see what he's working through here. But nonetheless, this is why in his books, it is those who are apparently the farthest thing from what one would call a true Christian that Dostoevsky Dostoevsky asserts, that's the only real Christian here. That's the only true Christian, is the one that appears to be furthest from what we would call or how we would measure a Christian. Hmm. Because in the end all that they cling to is their faith in Christ. Tonight and that, tonight you will be with me, you know. In, exactly, in heaven. It. And keep therefore, it. through faith in Christ, they become these self-sacrificial, self-giving to the point of death personalities. They, their example then alerts others to the presence of something that's outside the norm, that's out, that's off-centered, like the idiot Prince Mishkin. Is, he's supposed to be a prince and he's supposed to be able to travel through high society because he's a prince. And yet... He's so outside the group, even when he's in the middle of the group. And this is why he's called the idiot. Yeah. Because he is the Christ figure in that novel. But to your point then, what Dostoevsky is driving at in his novels is, it's through faith in Christ that this happens. It's not a kind of generalized righteousness or a generalized set of virtues that make one Christ-like, but rather it's the bearing of the cross. It's the self-sacrificial life that makes one a Christian and that can only occur through faith in Christ because Christ then becomes an example, not in a late medieval negative sense, follow Jesus' example of obedience, but an example in a positive sense of bearing one's cross right. in joy. So what looks to be pathological,
1: which is uh, Dostoevsky just uh, parading his own personal struggle mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in a narrative form, actually yeah. um, that's that's how he's confronting it, right? Yes. forbearing bearing it. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. So to wrap it up, I'll go back to the beginning because it's so good. Hmm. Every cross and affliction that will come our way will be carried easily and suffered with joy because the yoke that Christ places on us is easy and his burden is light. Key there, Christ places it on us. Hmm. And therefore, in the midst of that cross bearing, if we can, when we can say, the cross that I bear was laid on me by Christ and therefore, even though I feel it's a great burden and although I feel that it is a great crushing weight that is on top of me, if it is Christ who put this cross on me, then I know it is easy and it is light, even though I feel the opposite. And that it's gift. And that it, exactly that it is gift. That it is not put on me to punish me, but rather it is put on me to teach me. Right. And the example being, you know, uh,
1: you know jesus praying in gethsemane you know take this yeah, cup from me right. but not as i will but but as you will um, right. there he you know in his humanity is struggling with the giftedness of salvation for all mankind that has been right. placed upon him uh, as right. he sees it you know laid before him there that evening you know pretty mm. pretty profound but but that's it that's it
0: that is it and that's a perfect place to end the the podcast nice Happy New Year! I like it. Happy New Year to everyone who is listening to this today or in the future. I think next time we will come back and start on page two forty one. That's Galatians three verse thirteen, uh-huh. lecture twenty. We need to get to three and four, chapter three and four. We do, and so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." So next week, that's where we where we will start. So as Excellent. always. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for uh, supporting the podcast and all that we do here. If you have recommendations for us that you would like us to read, uh, email them to us at? Uh, That's
1: a good question. Do we have a separate email from everybody else? I don't, think, I don't so. think so. We usually just say send them to either like media at higherthings.org or support at higherthings.org. It'll, It'll get to It'll us. It'll get to us. It'll get to us. We'll yeah. find it. Just say it's for, and, it's uh, for, the, it's for the guys, lag. There, there we go. Yeah.
0: If you think we deserve it, please go leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It helps bump us up so we get more eyes on the podcast. Go check out all the other podcasts and content at the Higher Things website and also the YouTube channel. I was going to say, I was going to say,
1: make sure you subscribe to the show. Um, oh, yeah. You know, that, that way it's it's there. It's ready for you to listen. If you listen in the first couple of minutes, you're like, what are they talking about? Are they ever going to get to the text? And right. you decide to skip. That's all right. We want you to tune in and give it a shot. And, you know, if right. not this week, next week, you'll like it. You right.
0: Know? And if there's ways that you think we can improve the show. Oh, yeah. Uh, let us know. We reserve the right to refuse service, but nonetheless, we're always trying to make this better for you. And so please uh, share that with us as well. Be kind. That uh, helps get the message across. (laughs) Responds well to criticism. (laughs) Right. One sentence, change the format. It stinks. That's not really helpful. (laughs) But but no, if if you would like us to tighten this up or you'd like to hear more of the text being read and less banter or you'd like more banter or you like like the hour-long format versus the three-hour format, matter whatever it might be just drop us a line and let us know but as always thank you uh, we appreciate you and we love you and we will uh, talk at you again next time peace